Welcome to Naomi's Table, a Bible study podcast for women. I'm your host, Amy Spreeman. Check out all the Bible studies at Naomi'sTable.com. Now here's teacher Beth Seifert with today's lesson in 2 Corinthians. So pull up a chair, open your Bibles, and let's begin. Welcome back to the book of 2 Corinthians, ladies. Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. I've titled this lesson, Day 18, Follow the Example of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, we saw yesterday how Paul was demonstrating how foolish that the Corinthian believers had been in accepting a false Christ and a false gospel. And he ended that bit of foolishness of his own with an extremely sober warning. But Paul isn't finished with his foolishness as he defends himself and the true gospel that he brings. So Paul is about to drive home to them that if they want to play the one-upmanship game with these false teachers, he could totally do it and win. And he wraps up this section demonstrating how ridiculous it is to play that game. And he points to where our boasting should actually be. Just as the false teachers boast in the flesh, 
in their abilities, in their wisdom, Paul too will demonstrate how he can boast in his flesh as well. After all, these people gladly bear with real fools and the false teachers, while they claim to be so wise in themselves. But the evidence is obvious. These false teachers were abusing the people spiritually and financially, while demanding the loyalty and obedience of the people of Corinth, and the Corinthians were eager to go along with it. Now Paul is being sarcastic here when he says that he was too weak to go along with such abuse. Again, he's pointing out the foolishness of these Corinthian believers, who were so prideful, to follow these false teachers and try to heap shame on Paul. It's completely upside down. The ones who should be ashamed should be the ones who were abusing the people, not Paul. So what credentials does Paul have to one-up these false teachers? Well, the list he gives, again, demonstrates the fact that these Corinthians were caught up in the economy of the world and had discounted God's economy. So the way Paul starts here lets us know that these false teachers were Jewish. They may not have been the Judaizers that Paul addresses in Galatians, but they were boasting in their racial and cultural heritage. Heritage which, by the way, they had no business boasting in because they didn't have any control over the family lineage they were born into. But even on those terms, are these false teachers Hebrew? Well, great. So is Paul. Israelites? So is Paul. Offspring of Abraham? Yep. Check that off for Paul, too. Those three things do overlap, but they have a little bit of distinction. They were racially and ethnically Hebrew and Israelites, but the concept of being offspring of Abraham was a broader connotation of being part of God's family by being born into the chosen people of God, a spiritual heritage there. So far, Paul and the false teachers are even in man-centered terms. But what about in how they serve Christ? As ridiculous as it is for Paul to boast in this way, he's even a better servant of Christ. Now, here's the evidence that he points to in order to prove this point, and this is where we see the upside-down nature of God's economy once again. The evidence for Paul being a better servant of Christ is not in his amazing success and power. It's in his suffering. These false teachers were claiming that if you suffered, that was actually evidence that you were not of Christ. They insisted that proof of their service to Christ was in the blessings, particularly the material blessings that they enjoyed, and Paul flips that idea completely upside down. The labor that Paul has endured, the hard road he has followed to serve and honor Christ, demonstrates clearly that he does belong to Christ and that he is actually working for his Savior. Paul has been imprisoned, beaten, and often near death. Lest they think Paul is just making general statements, he gives specific instances. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 39 lashes. That's a really specific number, right? Well, in Deuteronomy 25.3, we see that 40 lashes was the absolute maximum punishment that was allowed in terms of a lashing offense. So the Jews, ever careful of the rules and wanting to create extra boundaries so that the rules wouldn't be broken, they set the number at 39, one less than that maximum. This way, if they accidentally lost count during the lashing, they would still be under the maximum. Now, mentioning that that gives any doubters something concrete to research and verify, as this wouldn't be unknown, and there would have been witnesses to verify those beatings. Three times he was beaten with rods. 
He was even stoned once, and they thought they'd killed him that time, but he was only mostly dead. He was shipwrecked not once, but three times. And again, shipwrecks are notable. And following the timeline of Paul's life, these three shipwrecks actually occurred before the shipwreck we see in Acts 27. So we know at this point that there's at least one more shipwreck in Paul's future. Paul was a notable character too. It wouldn't be hard to verify any of this. Then he gets a little bit more general again, speaking of general danger from the constant travel, from rivers, robbers, his own people, Gentiles, city, wilderness, the sea, false brothers, much hardship and toil, sleep deprived, lacking basic necessities like food and water and shelter. Add to that his anxiety for all the churches, for their persevering in Christ, for their purity, and not being led astray by false teaching, as he worries for their souls. These are the things that he lists as evidence of his authenticity and status in Christ. Think about it. What is the example that we have from Christ that would lead us to recognize that what Paul experienced in his hardship and suffering was actually evidence of Christ being with him? Christ was born into what kind of a family? A poor family, lowly, humble, of questionable birth. In many ways, Christ could not boast in his family because of the shadow that hung over his own birth. Christ was not much to look at, and he didn't stick out in a crowd. We are never given a description in Scripture of what Jesus looked like. He wasn't the guy that you would vote most likely to succeed or most charismatic. Even when he began his earthly ministry, it wasn't his appearance or even necessarily his eloquence or his message that brought people to him. People did come to hear him preach, and they came to watch and experience miracles. They were either drawn to the message or the show. Jesus was not accepted by the established authorities because they had established themselves outside of what God had established. Instead, he was handed over to be killed, to be mocked and beaten and tortured, and then murdered in the most humiliating and shameful way imaginable. That's what he faced. He wasn't surrounded by the who's who in leading religious thought. He didn't command a high fee before he would speak. The example that Christ gave and set was one of the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. And that's the example that we see Paul experiencing as well. Remember, Christ said that a servant isn't greater than his master, and if they hated Christ, they'll hate us as well. Thus, the adoration of the world for these false teachers actually demonstrates their falseness. Their wealth, their power, their prestige, their influence, and their refusal to humble themselves for anyone else demonstrate that they are not actually following the true Christ. Paul's boasting is not in what or who he is or in his qualifications. Paul's boasting all surrounds his weaknesses. All the ways in which he has suffered and been in situations where he could not rescue himself. Paul's boasting is in Christ, in the obvious work and power that has been done in and for Paul to help him to endure all these things. In all that Paul lists, the power to save was not from Paul. He doesn't have any clever MacGyver-type stories of how he used his tunic and sandal to escape from the robbers or the false brothers. No, Paul didn't rescue himself. God rescued him. God gets the glory in Paul's life, and his life bears witness to that reality. If he was not God's, on God's mission, Paul would have been dead 50 times over. God himself is witness to all of Paul's suffering. 
Paul then, kind of as an afterthought, recalls how in Damascus, the governor, under King Aretas, again, giving us the name of the guy so that the details could be verified, they wanted to seize Paul, but instead he was let down in a basket from the city wall to escape. How anticlimactic. There was no daring battle through the hordes who sought to capture him. Nope, just, here, climb in the basket and we'll let you down outside the city so you can run for it. This event, by the way, was the first recorded persecution of Paul. Paul went from persecuting Christians to having to escape a relatively minor civil authority like a common criminal. This wasn't a heroic escape. That was fleeing. Paul's resume highlights suffering. It doesn't elevate Paul. It elevates the God who continues to sustain Paul. And that's what we see in Scripture, ladies. The call to die is the call we answered when we follow Christ. The call to die to ourselves and our sin and our own wants. The call to die for Him, if that is what we are called to do. Christ entered into our lives, our humanity, in every way possible, but He did it without sinning. We then enter into His suffering so that we, too, may enter into His glory. He identified with us, taking on human form and paying what we couldn't pay, And we identify with him through our confession and baptism, and we share in Christ's sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. We are his. We have the sure promise of Christ for all eternity. Persecution has been the norm of Christ's followers throughout history. We here in the West have enjoyed a time of reprieve from that suffering, But that's all that it has been. The norm is suffering, persecution, martyrdom for our Savior. There is a cost of following Christ. If he hasn't cost you anything, you might consider whether or not you're actually serving him. In my life, I haven't been persecuted in terms of being shot at or beaten or imprisoned for following Christ, but I have lost friends and even familial relationships because of Christ. It's painful, it is, but he's so worth it. He's always worth it. As our world continues to rebel in ever more obvious ways against God, we will see persecution of Christians increase in the West. It's already happening in European countries. It's coming here, too. The false prosperity gospel would say that God only wants his people to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. But that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not the example of those who truly poured themselves out for the sake of the gospel. So ladies, consider a couple of things today. First of all, are you paying attention to those whose teaching you sit under to be sure they are of God? Are you distracted by the show or by their charismatic speaking so that you don't notice that they don't actually point you to Christ, but they're really much more interested in talking about themselves, as we discussed yesterday? Secondly, do you understand that suffering is the norm for those who belong to Christ? Are you preparing yourself to suffer well for your Savior by digging into his word now, by spending time in prayer and seeking him before that comes? We can't know what the suffering each of us will face will look like, but we can prepare ourselves by taking advantage of the gifts we have while we can. The time to learn about your God is now, before you're faced with suffering. It is in the suffering that those truths that you learn will give your feet a firm foundation as you see those truths lived out in your life, but learn about your God, who He is, what He calls us to, 
what hope we have now before the day of evil comes to you. And ask God to help you when that day comes to be able to stand fast, to hold firm, and to have the grace he gives in those moments to be bold for him. He will provide all that you lack, ladies. But soak up as much as you can now before that time comes. Recently we had a hard stretch where a family member was literally at death's door. And that family member is outside of Christ. As we walked through all of that, I knew that whatever happened, whatever God ordains, is right, even if it meant that loved one went to death without salvation. That was hard. It was painful and all the more rough as we prayed for God to send someone that they would actually listen to who would point them to the true saving gospel. And that didn't happen. That person did survive this health crisis, but is still outside of Christ. I tell you, ladies, if I didn't know that God is good and didn't know that I could trust him before we went through that, if I had to learn that as we walked that path, the pain would have been so much worse. We still would have learned it, don't get me wrong. But, oh, what a gift to have the assurance to know that I can trust him, even when I don't understand what is going on and I'm struggling to hold fast to him. Ladies, dig into his word. Learn who he is. See his faithfulness. Cling to him now so that you know how to cling to him when trials do come. They will come. They come to all of us. And we have no idea when it will come to us. But God is good and he will not leave us nor forsake us. Hold fast to him. Ask him to help you to grow in your knowledge and love for him now. Don't wait until the trial is upon you. He is worthy of all glory and praise no matter what. Seek him today with all that you have. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website, naomistable.com, day 18. Follow the example of Christ.